0: I didn't think that was going to work. All right, I'm going to be looking at the last section in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes eleven seven through the end of the book, and then next week, Lord willing, we're going to come back and look at the beginning of the book. It's not not really the right way of reading. You're you're supposed to read from the beginning to the end, uh, but we're going to be doing it the opposite way. This is one of the most important books in the canon in terms of providing a counterpoint to a lot of the theology that you get in other places. It's utterly essential to understand the message of Ecclesiastes in a counterpoint kind of way. People ruin the book by trying to make it sort of line up with positive statements and theology in other places. It's not designed for that. Uh, It's designed to contrast other things. I'll make that argument more next week. So Ecclesiastes 11, verse 7, this is the Word of God. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you're young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then, banish anxiety from your heart. Cast off the troubles of your body. For youth and vigor are meaningless. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. When people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets. When the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred. Then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Oh, remember him. Before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise. But he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words. And what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them of making many books there is no end and much study wearies the body now all has been heard here is the conclusion of the matter fear god and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind for god will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing whether it is good Or evil. Before we consider this passage, let's pray. Father, we we know that this is part of your word. And as such, it is given by your spirit. It is our authority. It is our light. It gives us life. And so we pray that this morning you will open your word to us. We pray for those who on this last holiday weekend are traveling or away. We pray that you will be with them, that you will feed them and nourish them on the basis of your word as well, wherever they are. Uh, We pray that you will keep them safe and restore them to us. But Father, for for those who are here, we pray that uh, as we look to your word and as we observe communion together, I pray that you will bring us together in unity and love as we are united in Christ and love him supremely. We confess freely that we lack the wisdom to live and navigate the wilds of this world, and yet you are the God who gives wisdom without finding fault, even when there's much fault to find. And so we ask for wisdom, we we ask knowing that you will give it to us, we ask knowing that you will always confirm us as we walk in love, and as we walk with you by your spirit. Be with us, we pray this morning. Uh, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now if you are here regularly, then you will know that I have only once in my life ever, for a Sunday morning service, used PowerPoint. You will know that. And if you were here for that service... You are probably dreading the thought that I'm going to use it again. But I am. Uh, I, there's some people that I want you to see. The resolution of these photos is not overly good, and I apologize for that. Um, I, I don't know how to do things on the computer. Uh, but nonetheless, I think this is important. It's at least important to me. The book of Ecclesiastes, with the Greek title, Ecclesia, uh, refers to the assembly. This is not the Hebrew title, of course, but when in the Septuagint it's called Ecclesiastes, the, the Gathering, the assembly. And so the picture is you have the wisest person in the world standing to address an assembly. Today we might think of, of a convocation or you know a, a Harvard or Oxford graduation or something along those lines. Now it's not overly difficult for you to imagine being addressed by the wisest person in the world, because that's your weekly experience. But for them, it was almost sort of a thought experiment. What would it be like to be addressed by such a person? And as we'll talk about next week, can you imagine if you went to hear sort of the the wisest person in the world teach you about the meaning of life? And they categorically go through everything, and, and they tell you that there isn't one. That it's all angst all the way down. That it's existential despair from beginning to end. That's the message of the book. If everything really is, this is the important part, if everything really is considered just under the sun, just now, just in temporal categories, there really is nothing that provides ultimate purpose or meaning at all. Nothing. When I came to Guelph, there was a young man that many of you would know named Andrew Rozalewski. Several people uh, told me within a few months of being here that I needed to meet this person, that we were going to hit it off really well. Now, as an introvert, the idea of meeting anyone that I don't know is horrifying, uh, especially when there's pressure. You know, it's sort of like one of those moments where you're brought into a room and someone says something like, oh, this is my friend, they're funny, say something funny. You know, it's just impossible at that point to to do anything. Uh, and so, for me, when I met Andrew for the first time, it had kind of the feeling of an arranged blind date, uh, where we were supposed to hit it off, and somehow, impossibly, uh, we did. Uh, We were very similar in a lot of ways. Uh, Andrew was a little bit younger than I was. Uh, He was someone who just had a really good heart. Uh, He was a scholar. He was studying at McMaster. Uh, He was taking his master's degree, uh, specializing really in uh, New Testament Greek. He was very intelligent, but also someone who loved the church. And so he was someone that I appreciated very, very much. Now, Andrew, when I met him, had been battling leukemia. Uh, It was in remission uh, when I met him, but it wasn't too much longer after meeting that the cancer sort of came roaring back. And so most of our time was spent talking in his hospital room uh, in Kitchener, in the oncology ward. The last time I saw him, uh, I went in and he was very weak. And I said, Andrew, I'm only going to stay for 20 minutes. We're just going to chat for 20 minutes. Uh, An hour and a half later, I said, Andrew, I'm so sorry uh, for staying this long. And he said, Well, we never had a hard time talking, did we? I said, No. No, that's very rare, but that's the one thing we never had a hard time. Doing. Andrew died four and a half years ago, which seems impossible. January 6, 2014. He was 29 years old. A little bit later, Les Clemens Sr., one of my heroes. When I was a little kid, uh, he would have been in his 50s, 60s, and he could. Walk on his hands and do handstand push-ups. Um, now, I can do that too, but I'm not going to demonstrate it this morning. Uh, it is absolutely phenomenal. Is phenomenal because he's just this godly, humble, lovely guy. Uh, he was absolutely one of my heroes. He's a pastor, always in little tiny churches. He he wasn't overly gifted in terms of preaching, but he was one of those genuine people who everyone knew was the best of what Christianity is, in terms of personal character. I found out that he had been taken to the hospital, and he died on December 26th, obviously Boxing Day. I remember at a I at a family meal when I found out. December 26, 2014. He was in his 80th year. He was one of the few people I can say that from the time I was little... Until even today, he was a man that I loved. Sherry Banfield, I don't have a picture of. Sherry was one of my students at Toronto Baptist Seminary. Uh, she was taking my Old Testament survey course uh, a few hours before our final exam. She began to experience uh, excruciating headaches, and she was taken to the hospital. Uh, later that night, December 20th, 2016, uh, the night of our final exam, uh, she died from a brain aneurysm. Beatrice Ganech, you can see not overly well. There's padding around her neck. Uh, she was someone who was born with severe special needs. Uh, she was adopted from Africa. I got to know B and her family at summer conferences, where I've had the privilege of speaking over the last few years, and they adopted her, even though they knew that she had severe Special needs. Uh, she's never able to articulate verbally, although she could communicate. Especially if you if you got sort of down into her her visual field and made sure there was no distractions, kind of blinker her and and look into her eyes. You could talk to her. You could, you could hold her hands, uh, You could communicate with her in those ways. She was born April 30th, 2010, and died February 25th, 2017, of complications from. Her health conditions. One of the greatest privileges I've, I've ever had uh, was uh, drafting a letter to her parents uh, afterwards. Most recently, uh, my friend uh, Tatiana Blackburn, well, who was someone here, this is a picture of her in Peru on missions, a missions trip. Uh, she was one of my students at Heritage just this last year uh, she took my theology courses first and second semester, also then uh, my C.S. Lewis class in May and June. She's a real bright light, uh, smart, hardworking, uh, friendly. She was just extraordinarily sensitive to others. Believe it or not, in theology classes, when you get 18 to 22-year-olds in a theology class, they're not always sensitive to one another, but she was uh, she was intelligent and sensitive. I could always count on her when things started getting heated to, to have convictions, but also just to say a word in season, which would separate primary from secondary issues. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, I was told uh, that she was killed in a car accident on August 17, 2018, uh, eight days after becoming engaged. 20 years old. For youth and vigor are meaningless. Whether you live 80 years or 8, what really does it matter? What's the point? What meaning is there? What does it matter when you are young if you are strong? How important can health and strength be when you are going to lose it all? Every life ends with death. Every single life. The world is filled with death. Perhaps it's unkind, but I will say it. The baby one day will die the youngest life in this room inevitably will end in death. That's a reminder. It does raise the question, are you ready to die? What if it happened today? These are the sorts of questions that preachers are renowned for asking to try to scare people into the kingdom. But what if it was today? Cherry uh, studying two years ago for her final exam, was not expecting to die before writing us. Tatiana was not expecting to be in a car and to be killed on August 17th. What if it was today? And what if it were you? Or what if it was the person that you love the most? One of the messages of Ecclesiastes that you start to need to wrestle through is this. Why love people at all? Why bother? Why love people when the end is inevitable? Why open up your heart at all? Why minister to people? Why care about people? Why love when love will always break your heart in the end? It's going to happen. No matter what the relationship is, it is going to end in severance. And the more deeply you love, the more deeply you will feel that pain. Now, we will talk more about this next week. As I said earlier, some want to make this into a positive book. I think that's that's just a a Christian twisting of the book. If you read it in context, it's not positive at all. It's hyper-cynical. Actually, it's not. That's that's my mistake. It's cynical and pessimistic in one way, but it's just because it's real. It's just realistic. It's just telling you what life is actually like under the sun. That's all there is to it. And and unfortunately, life under the sun, if this is all there is, it is a pessimistic experience. We need to spend more time reading non-Christian writers. You you want to understand pessimism. You want to understand what it's actually like to feel and live uh, with people who are deeply emotional and intelligent without any hope for more than this? Tougher generations embrace despair. Our weak and spineless generation has embraced distraction because they can't handle reality. Chapter 12 basically says this. Remember that your creator while you're young remember the one who made you while you can because your mind and your body are going to fail and you could die at any time. That's the message of the book. Remember your creator. We've made this into sort of wall art. We've made so many verses in Ecclesiastes wall art, ripping them totally out of context. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. No, it's a positive injunction. Know God while you're young. Really what it's saying is know God while you can. Because pretty soon you're going to be a tottering wreck. That's the architectural metaphor of chapter 12. Chapter 11, verses 7 through 10 tells you this. Young people can have a zest for life, but many older people will lose that. The days will come when you have no pleasure. You will say, I have no pleasure in them. The day will come when the person who traveled all over the world will not be able to get out of bed. The world contracts dramatically. The image in chapter 12, verses 2 through 7 is of a deteriorating house. It's a metaphor, obviously. The sun and the light, verse 2, uh, grow dark. When the light source is dark, what do you see? Nothing. This is like one of the great negations in, in all of music. One of the great negations, a ph- phenomenal line, is in Bob Dylan's song, uh, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Uh, if you want to know why Dylan uh, won the Nobel Prize in literature, that's the song to read. Also, read a bunch of literature He allows you, lousy and you won't be surprised that he won. Uh, but, but read Dylan's song. Pay attention to the lyrics. It is, it is unbelievably rich in biblical and literary allusions. One of the, but one of the lines in the song is this. When black is the color and none is the number. When black is the color, there's no light at all. When none is the number you work with, you work with pure negation and nothing else. When Jesus says, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's saying what Dylan is alluding to. If your light is dark, how dark is that? If your number is zero, it's all negation. The clouds return after the rain it started to rain very hard out there. Half of you know that because you looked. Uh, so you know already, I'm not pointing out anything to you, that, you don't, that you're not aware of, uh, that it was raining very hard outside. When you're young, um, when I was younger, I, I played a lot of sports. And when I was in grade 10, I sustained so my first serious injury. Uh, I hurt my left knee. And a serious injury when you're in grade 10 means it's sore for three days and you wrap it up and play anyway, right? At this point in my life, I can sustain a serious injury sitting in a chair. And and so, especially long term, actually, that's not even a joke. uh, But trying to get out of a chair, I I can hurt myself. And and if I get hurt now, one of the things I'm finding is I'm already that that horrid cliche of the person who used to be in shape, right? I I can talk about, you know, I used to be able to do this and, and then I did the math and it was 20 years ago. And, and all of a sudden, my shoulder, which I heard coaching volleyball over a decade ago, actually aches some days. Those, those sports injuries. Just, you think about it, injuring yourself playing sports isn't very noble either, so you need to come with better stories. When, it, when, I, when I rescued that person in distress, and I, my shoulder was wrenched, those injuries, those hero injuries, those, those Galahad-type injuries, they're the ones that, that plague me uh, today. When you're young, time is on your side. You, you bounce back. But when you're older, you're one fall away from losing your house. You're, you're one twisted knee away from a nursing home. When you're young, it rains, but the sun's coming back out. When you're older, it rains, and then the next storm comes rolling in right on its heels. The clouds return right after the rain. Storm after storm after storm. All the sunny days that you could look forward to when you were young are gone. Time is no longer on your side. There's no recovery anymore. Your body fails. That's the imagery here. The keepers of the house tremble. It's probably the arms. The strong men stoop. Those who once walked with shoulders back and purpose in their stride now shuffle along. The grinders, he says, the teeth fall out. Those looking through the windows grow dim. People begin to lose their eyesight. And also, in a world where they didn't have refining tools for making glass lenses, you have no idea how many people went through life blind and squinting, just like in many parts of the world today. I I honestly believe that, that, that... Eyeglasses is one of the greatest blessings that our society has, and it's something that people curse and moan about. If you only had any idea the blessing it is to be in a time in history and in a world where you can have eyeglasses, my goodness. Sight fails. Hearing fades. But people get scared easily. Was that a noise? Who's there? They rise up. This is just a tweeting bird scares them, but they can't hear the song. There's fears. Of course, studies show that that the older you get, I mean, there's a sweet period as an adult, but then the older you get, the more you're afraid to go out in the streets. Surveys will show that a lot of a lot of seniors are afraid. They start going towards a mall, and then there's you know there's kids hanging out outside the door. There's a lot of nervousness, shuffling past a gang of teenagers, even if they're just sort of goofing around, even if they're just there. There's terrors, in there's dangers in the streets, the text says. People are afraid of heights. That is, you're afraid of falling. Interestingly enough, we also know that seniors are more apt to fall precisely because they're afraid of falling. But as when you're worried about your footing, you actually look down at where you're going, and which throws off your balance. If you just walk with purpose and confidence, you're less likely to fall than if you're shuffling along afraid that you will. becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy physiologically. Then metaphors of aging. The almond tree blossoms, white blossoms. That's white hair. If you have hair, I'm still not sure if I'm going to have white hair or be totally bald at that point. Uh, it's uh, my hair's in a bit of a race, it's either fall out or turn white. I'm not sure who's going, to, which one's going to prove swiftest. Uh, the grasshopper drags itself along. Have you ever seen grasshoppers jump? I know you have, but no. But but have you actually ever seen it? Like, they actually paid attention. Have you ever sort of looked at how little their bodies are and then see how far they go? It's just, it's the, it's the most amazing thing. It's one of the great things about kids, like they can actually find those things exciting. One of the worst things about adults is that we, we stop. Adults would be a lot better to spend a lot more time on their hands and knees crawling around a yard looking for things like this. Make it your backyard. Your na- you're trying to witness to your neighbors. But, yeah, but, but nonetheless, my goodness, what, what incredible things these little things are. No, then you find a grasshopper at the end of its life just dragging itself along. Faltering movement. When desire is no longer stirred. Maybe sexual desire. It may be just desire for life. Some people, we say, die because they lost the will to live. There's just nothing they're living for. And then you die. People go to their eternal home. And mourners go about the streets. That culture hired professional mourners. A lot of countries have professional mourners today. So basically that's it. Remember your creator while you're young because you're going to die. And if you don't die young, your body's going to deteriorate. And then you'll die. And there'll be a funeral for you. And later on, the book has already told you, generations to come don't remember the people who came before. 200 years from now, not a single person on earth is going to know or care that anyone in this room ever existed. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken. This probably is, the picture is probably of uh, a bowl with oil and, and a sort of candle in it that's been hooked up to a ceiling uh, by you know, by a cord, Dangling down, didn't have electricity like we have today. And so probably the idea is that your source of light in the home, something's happened. The cord has been severed. It falls down. The bowl shatters. The light is extinguished. The wheel at the well is obvious. You can't get water. Light and water are gone. it's symbols for death. So the conclusion is this: the last words of the wisest person in the history of the world. Meaningless. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And you're supposed to have read through the book where he categorically goes through everything. Someone will say, well, what about this? He mentions it and tells you it's meaningless. Now in this section, the frame narrator evaluates the words. Now he's talking about the teacher, it's not the teacher talking. The teacher's words were wise and he imparted knowledge. They go, these words goad you into action. They make you uncomfortable. One of the marks of wisdom is that if you listen to wisdom, there should be times when you distinctly feel uncomfortable on its basis. One of my problems with... I don't know, I'm not going to say it. No, I will. Uh, one of my problems with what I think to be a lot of Western Christianity is it's designed not to goad anyone into anything. It's designed to make everyone feel comfortable and, and happy. That's not what the, you, my goodness, you, you can't read Ecclesiastes if that's your goal without twisting it, which is why it's so twisted today. They nail you down. It's painful, but it gives you security. Also notice much study wearies the body. Not a little bit of study. Not reading the Daily Bread for devotions. Not reading you know uh, five pages of a novel. Much Study is wearying, and it's wearying because it's hard and discouraging, because there's so much that's wrong. The vast majority of what you read and study is likely to be inaccurate. So where can we actually find true wisdom? Well, the final conclusion of the book is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. People love, the evangelical Christians love this verse. Here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? No one asked that question. It's in verse 14. Four, causal connection. God's going to do, judge everything you've ever done. That's why you fear him. So that's the message. At the end of your meaningless life, you better fear God because you're going to die and he's going to judge you. So live your meaningless life in expectation of judgment. That's the message. Even hidden things will be judged. Notice whether it is good or evil. Some hidden things are evil. Some hidden things are good. It's not always the showy things that everyone notices which are good. Sometimes it's the quiet things, the unseen things that God evaluates very highly. So in Ecclesiastes, biblical context, under the sun is a critical point. If you just look at life, just this life, go around and look at life, do you find anything ultimately meaningful? The answer is no. So then, in biblical context, not ecclesiastic, not Ecclesiastes context, but in biblical context then, unless there is forever, then everything just doesn't matter. It just doesn't. Your relationships, your joys, your aches, your longings, your dreams, none of it matters in the end if this is all there is. If it's all temporal, it's not enough. If it's only under the sun, it's not enough. There has to be forever. But what if there is? What if there actually is forever? What if if death isn't the last word? What if your body breaks down and you lose your mind, but it's, the not, but it's not the last experience you will ever have? B. Gainick never articulated a single sentence in her entire life. But if the gospel is true, and there is forever, now she can speak with a fluency that I cannot imagine. Now, I set a pretty low bar for fluency, I understand. But for her, the way she can understand and communicate, even whatever language it is that they speak in that place, or maybe even languages plural, who knows? She would be so much above me now as I was above her when she was here in this world. Maybe there would even be a greater difference. Probably there would be. When I, when I taught Sherry Old Testament and I taught Tatiana theology, if they could come back, if we were in the classroom together now, I would not be the teacher. I, I, I would sit at their feet, and my temptation would be to worship them, seeing the purity of their souls and hearing the wisdom and knowledge that they have from actually seeing and being in the presence of the one that we only talk about in shadows now. In A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis is married to Joy. Uh, They married late in life, of course. You will recall this story. Uh, Joy developed cancer and ended up Dying, and Lewis wrote A Grief Observed, his most personal book, uh, just uh, reflections of the experiences that he had in the time after her death. He ends the book with these words. How wicked it would be if we could to call the dead back. She said not to me but to the chaplain, I am at peace with God she smiled but not at me poesia eterna al eterna fontana and that's the last word now if you were in Lewis' circle of friends at Oxford, then you were educated and you probably knew what that last sentence means. If you didn't, you could probably figure out that given his, his teaching in medieval Renaissance literature and the fact that the quotations in Italian, that this is a reference from Dante. And of course it is. Uh, it's from the Divine Comedy. Uh, most of us are familiar with Dante's Inferno. Uh, But, of course, that's only one of the three books that he wrote in the comedy. So you, you have the Inferno, Hell, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. This is near the end of Paradiso. Now, you could probably figure it out. You can probably figure it out, actually, even if you don't know Italian. Maybe not the whole thing. But turno sounds like turn, right? Tourniquet. And so that's exactly what it is. It's turn. Eterna sounds an awful lot like our word. Eternal. Fontana. Baptismal font. Fount. Fountain. This is actually one of the great things about Dante. You can actually read Dante, and, and even if you don't speak Italian, you can figure it out a little bit uh, as you go. So, this is what Lewis is saying. He's referring to this fantastic scene when Beatrice... That's the she she in the text that you'll see. Beatrice has been his guide through paradise. But at this point, right near the end, it's not at the very end, um, St. Bernard is going to take over and, and guide uh, Dante through the last little bit of paradise, heaven. You will recall St. Bernard uh, as the patron saint of avalanche victims. And large furry dogs. And so he's the one guiding uh, Dante just at the very end uh, of the paradise. Beatrice has been his guide from the last few cantos of the Purgatorio through the Paradiso. But she now has to go and take her seat. She to climb up to her throne in this ascending hierarchy of thrones. She has to get to her spot where she sits enthroned to worship God forever. You probably remember that the love shared between Dante and Beatrice is considered one of the great loves in the history of the world. Although it was awfully unconventional. They met when they were nine, and Dante loved her purely from that time on, even though she had married someone else, given culture, and then he married someone else. Uh, she was always his paragon of, of perfect beauty and goodness, and the inspiration of his greatest works. He always looked at her as that, that perfect symbol and reality of goodness and beauty. So it's not a surprise that she, di- I mean, she died, and it's not a surprise that he has her be his tour guide through paradise. Now, right before this line, then she turned back to the eternal fountain. She has left him to go and take her seat. And he's been speaking to her for, for life. And then he says this, after, after addressing her. The line is this. Such was my prayer. Then she, far up a mountain as it appeared to me, Looked down and smiled. Pois eterno Eliterna Fontana. Then she turned back to the eternal fountain. Lewis scholars obviously point out the meaning of this verse when they teach about Lewis. One of the things that is not commonly observed, though, that I think is very important, is that when Joy dies, she smiled, but not at me. That is, when she's leaving this world, her focus is on God. She smiles, but not at Louis. eterno, eternal. eterna Fontana. But in the Divine Comedy, Beatrice does smile at Dante, and then turns to God. As if when God calls us out of this world, we turn our eyes from our loved ones and focus on him. But in heaven, although the focus is on the eternal fountain, there's also time to share love with the ones that we love. There's also time to smile down on the ones that we care about. So there's actually loving community forever, all centered around the eternal fountain. She loves Dante, but ultimately her focus is on God. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not meaningless. Let Ecclesiastes be Ecclesiastes. Let it give its message in its context. But locate it in the biblical context to which it serves as a counterpoint. If all we have is this, it's meaningless and then there's judgment and loss. But if there's the resurrection... then there really, truly is forever. And no love is lost because of the eternal fountain. We're going to celebrate communion together. Paradoxically, the only reason life is meaningful is because of this death. The only reason there is eternal life is because there was a temporal death. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's death and resurrection is what provides for eternal life. And because of what Christ has done, we will be together forever. We will love in perfection. That will be our experience. But we will always turn back to the eternal fountain. And that's what we must do even now. We must love one another, we must smile upon one another, and we must always direct each other's gaze back to the eternal fountain. Communion is designed to help us do that. Communion is something that we share together as a community, as an ecclesia, as an assembly, And we are assembled around the great love, the love incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ who poured himself out for us. I'm going to ask those who are going to help distribute the elements to come forward at this time. You can take a moment uh, to bow in prayer and then we'll celebrate communion together.